If you attend a crypto conference these days, you'd be hard-pressed to find many people who are bullish on Bitcoin as we head into the second half of the year. But Weiss's Jordi Visser doesn't look at the largest crypto asset like others do. He sees Bitcoin as part of a macro story that features China in a starring role. I'm G3, and today I'll talk with Jordi about the green marbles he's found on why Bitcoin and China are linked, and we'll also discuss the role played by animal spirits. So please, stick around, check out important disclosures at the end of the podcast, and get ready for one of the most bullish takes on Bitcoin you'll find just about anywhere. And with that, welcome. We are recording Hello, Jordy. Beautiful day. Happy to have you here back in the seat looking healthy. We are going to be talking about animal spirits in China and Bitcoin and why this is a critical juncture in your view. Let's start off by just going to the morning meeting over the last few weeks. You have been hammering home again and again this idea that animal spirits in China are coming back. You're seeing strong signs of it. Before we go too far down that rabbit hole, let's just talk about terms. Everybody knows, or most everyone is familiar with the idea of animal spirits, but can you just take us through your definition of it and how it relates to assets and the broader global economy? Hi, G3. Hello. (laughs) It's good to be back. All right. First of all, before I go through the definition, let me give you a little history. And it's one of my favorite terms and you don't get to use it too often. And I'll describe why, but it was absolutely a big part of my life from 1994 to 1999. And that's because I was in emerging markets. So for the definition of animal spirits and for people who've never really gone and and read on it, John Maynard Keynes wrote a book in the mid thirties. So during the depression, called The General Theory of Employment Interest in Money. And he used the term animal spirits. And basically, to give you a definition of it, you really have to think how economics is connected to human emotion that can help drive financial decision-making. And so during the Great Depression, we were trying to find ways to get people to take risk. It was a scary time. And I read multiple books on the Great Depression because my grandmother was born in 1920 and I was fascinated by her life in terms of the first 25 years of her life was really the bull market into the Great Financial Crash or into the Great Depression. And then she lived through the Great Depression and then she was involved in World War II in some way. So by the time she was 25, (laughs) the better part of her youth when you should be having a good time. She was involved in a lot of horrible things. And so I became fascinated with the Great Depression, like I think a lot of people, because it's something that helped shape my views on economics. But it was this piece of animal spirits. And a lot of people don't know, but they started bringing psychologists in to try and find how do we get people to take risk again? And so animal spirits is really important when you're connecting psychology to economics and trying to convince people that their emotions are actually causing their financial decision making in uncertain times. And that's the whole thing. When you can't look forward by a year because of the uncertainty, it extends further out of five to 10 years. So animal spirits is the ability for the government through both monetary policy and fiscal policy 
to try and change that emotion. And I think it's very important with regards to China right now. What's happening in China right now that is resulting in you pounding the table in this way? This has been an incredibly challenging year for China in terms of their stock market and the economy. You obviously have to start with the most important thing, which is they're going through a wave of COVID through Omicron that has locked down their cities in, in a way that really was not seen even to a great degree in March of 2020 or didn't last as long and spread across the country. And that's because this wave of COVID is much more contagious. So their zero COVID policy created a lot of issues. And you started to see the government, which has historically been very popular because of the asset growth that you've seen and the ability for the Chinese government to control things. Well, in the zero COVID policy, they had no control over this. And so you had a scenario where the people in the country were getting more negative. Second thing, you have to remember when Russia invades Ukraine, this puts a lot of pressure on China because China, who's trying to stay out of things, is now being used by the rest of the world or believed by the rest of the world that they're helping Russia. And so regardless of whether it's true or not, it had impacts on their investments. And into March, their stocks were falling incredibly fast. And their technology stocks in particular, because of regulations that they put in on their internet platforms, but then also because of fears that from the Western world that they were tied to Russia. So you had the stock market fall there, and that hurt people dramatically in terms of losses in their portfolio, particularly in the names that matter. And then you have this other scenario that the Fed creates uncertainty by basically saying they're going to fight inflation, which does not necessarily hurt China dramatically, but what it did do is hurt U.S. technology stocks. And that hurt hedge funds in the U.S. that own these, that you've seen the returns on them. And the major innovation leaders in the world in terms of market cap are the U.S. and China. There's no one even close to number three. And so by having that, their stocks fell violently into March. And it wasn't until President Xi came out on March, I believe it was 16th or 17th, at the peak of the fears over Russia, where there were fears that we would basically stop people from being able to invest in shares there, similar to what we were doing in Russia, that he came out and said, okay, I'm going to reduce regulations. And he threw everything in the wind, focus on the stock market. And the problem is COVID was just entering the worst period. Shanghai was just about to be locked down and then Beijing was. So the first five months of this year, in a year where you have the 20th party Congress coming up later this year, a government that's being viewed by their own citizens in a way that hasn't occurred. So that is their version, in my opinion, of a depression. And their data have fell off a cliff. You've got people locked down. And nobody in the country that I talk to has any faith that the decisions of stimulus that the government has been announcing, saying to people, we're going to make sure things are good, nobody believes it. And so you're not getting that reaction that you normally get. And so animal spirits, as opposed to enthusiasm or believing the government, they're having a hard time. So they're having to throw a lot more at it. The rhetoric from people locally is not turning positive. They're not believing that they will out of the zero COVID. They're not believing that the regulations that China is doing are going to happen. Remember, they had a housing debt problem with Evergrande. That was a major fear in the fourth quarter that sits as an overhang. So people are still worried. But the assets are telling me a different story within the stock market. And I believe animal spirits are showing and the narrative always follows the animal spirits. So China trying to get animal spirits going, which is what their government is doing. It's starting to work. 
So the narrative always follows the animal spirits. I like that phrase. Which assets in particular are you paying the closest attention to? There's two separate things. One is the Shenzhen composite, which is Shenzhen is their Silicon Valley to some degree. A lot of the companies are located there and it's the hardware capital of the world. So the Shenzhen composite has been one thing that I use as a gauge and it's had a significant move. It's basically over the last 27 days had the largest 27 day move since the COVID lows. You're up about 19% in that index through last night, through Tuesday night or Wednesday night. And then at the same point, you have, let's say, the Western investor world version of that, which is the Hang Seng Tech Index. And that is exploding. It was up 4.76% last night. That index is up 25% now in the last 18 days. So you've seen a significant move there. That includes Tencent, Alibaba, JD.com. A lot of the names that were sold out by foreign investors, these are large cap securities. So they matter a lot and they're up significantly. And that change in the market there is having an impact on things over in the U.S. where we're starting to see it impact beta. And I want to make sure people listening to this hear this. I don't think people understand the importance of China. Their money supply is massive. It's almost $40 trillion through the end of March. The U.S.'s money supply through the end of March is $22 trillion. And the delta in terms of growth for China is much faster than the U.S. Their money supply matters dramatically for the rest of the world. When they're not taking risk and they're in a position where animal spirits are needed, it has a huge impact on asset prices. In particular, it has a huge impact on beta Beta has been the thing that has driven the market lower this year, even in the U.S. Through yesterday's close, the S&P X technology and communications, it was down less than 7% year to date. This has all been about technology, which has been impacted by both rates, but also been impacted by China. So the fact that China is going through this and you're seeing this inside the markets there, it's starting to have an impact around the rest of the globe in a meaningful way. What leads is liquid assets because if you change your mind, you can get out of them. Making long-term purchases on an airline to the United States three months from now is not something people are going to do quickly. Making a large purchase on a house is not going to happen quickly because you have no idea what's going to happen with Omicron or any of these situations with the zero COVID policy. So what you do is you put your money into the stock market when it starts doing well. You try to create little wealth. You go through it. And that's why the stock market leads. And that has been the case in the United States when we move to a more technology front. So China has gone from what, if you think about the transition for the US in the 1980s, when technology started to really become a big thing here, it's no longer about commodities and building cities in China. It's about innovation and consumption. And that's the part that's showing up. All right. Well, I want to bridge this conversation over to Bitcoin. But before we do, I just want to ask you one quick thing. You mentioned a couple of very high-profile hedge fund unwinds. And of course, as you know, when a hedge fund blows up, that can have an impact on the narrative and people can get scared, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we in the process of some very high-profile hedge funds going through the pain that is necessary in order to form a new base? It's one of the most important things, I think, for people to take out of this. I'm still sticking with my belief that U.S. stocks are going to finish up on the year, mainly because I think we're past the peak of inflation. And if we're not there yet, we're going to be there by the end of the summer. We're seeing more and more slowdowns, seeing more and more data points that are suggesting that the labor market is softening. But most importantly, 
we're getting the stimulus in China, which I think will support the tech side and inflation is going to stay on the higher side. So I think stocks will continue to move higher. But what happened in hedge funds that's really important is we finally hit the newsworthy level. There were three announcements that happened within about two weeks of each other. I'm not going to go through the names of the hedge funds, but one of them was down 50 some odd percent through the year through May. That same hedge fund that had that, the 13F filings came out and they made huge sales of a lot of their positions. Another hedge fund shut down, which had been associated with these. And then a third one who is not down as much as the closure or the one that was released basically said, uh, we're sitting in about 80% cash. So the hedge fund world, and again, when you're in growth and innovation, you're not dealing with leverage. The thing you're trapping investors with is the illiquidity on the private investments. And that's been the issue. So I think we've already done a lot of the discounting and I don't think there's a lot of forced selling left. So what I've said to people is this year has been kind of 1994 where the Fed surprised combined with 2000 to 2003, which was the unwind of the tech sector. Instead of it happening over a three-year period this year, the tech unwind occurred in basically a span of about four months in terms of the bigger stuff and about a year on some of the things like ARC and the less liquid names that were highly speculative. But now I think we've done enough damage and that's why I think the lows are in unless expectations of the Fed change dramatically and China's stimulus doesn't work and we don't see the animal spirits that we've been seeing so far. The lows are in. You've heard it here. All right. As it relates to crypto in general and Bitcoin specifically, I know that you know that many people in the broader Web3 world are aggressively bearish these days. You have repeatedly said that the S&P is going to finish up in the year, and you have also said that Bitcoin is going to be the best performing asset Given the fact that we've had this Terra Luna crash and assorted other, you know, quote unquote, bad things that have happened in this space, can you explain why you are sticking with your call on Bitcoin? <laughs> yes. It's a fascinating world when everyone who is a fiat person is negative. And at the same time, almost everyone I talk to in the crypto world is either angry or negative at this point. And it's been that way for the better Probably part of Probably both, right? They're yeah. angry and negative. <laughs> so initially, most of the podcasts that we've done on crypto, and I want to separate the conversation from crypto to Bitcoin for the rest of this, but I want to make the transition this way. We spent a lot of time late last year and into early this year talking about the power of Web 3.0 and what it'll mean and the disruption that it'll go. None of that has changed to me, but I do want to go back to a paper that I wrote in 2020 for the focus of this conversation. And in 2020 in December, I wrote a paper that said Bitcoin was now officially an asset, but I also wrote about speed chess. And in a world on the Bitcoin side of it being an asset, people always have to remember that are on the crypto side, but also the fiat side. At the end of the day, crypto is an innovation. When innovation stocks are falling and we're seeing stocks and bonds decline at the pace and we're basically having asset deflation, Bitcoin is an asset. It's going to go down with it. It's part of the liquid asset side. But more importantly, a lot of those hedge funds that went out of business, if you go through their holdings, they owned a lot of Bitcoin. They owned a lot of uh, Bitcoin uh, stocks. They were impacted by what was happening. So 
everything gets thrown into the blender in this. So for those people in the crypto world that are trading Bitcoin, always remember that the reason I became focused on it is because it is an asset and it's connected to the fiat world. When when you drop the fiat world dramatically in terms of the assets, it's a big problem. But in particular, the tech side, and I'll make one other point, I believe the number one driver of Bitcoin on the way up is China. And I'll make that argument as to why it's so important. On the way up from here. Meaning... When China, when Bitcoin is going down or Bitcoin is going up, the China tailwind or headwind is going to be a really important thing for people to focus on. So yes, I do believe it's about to go higher again. And part of that is because of what's happening in China tech shares. If you do an overlay of Bitcoin since November, and I say November because that's when the Fed pivoted and we started to move into, okay, where's the Fed going to be at the end of this year? And it started the year at about 80 basis points for the Fed funds, right? And now we're up at about 285. Well, when we were printing money, everyone was positive on crypto and it started to rally from March. So certainly when we're draining liquidity from the system, that should be a headwind to the movement in Bitcoin, which it was. And so it was correlated to not only the Fed funds rate inverted. So as Fed funds rate was going higher into the end of the year, Bitcoin was going down. At the same time, it's also correlated to the China tech names. And the reason China is so important goes back to what I said. What's the other driver of Bitcoin? If it's an asset, as fiat assets are going higher, people are transferring those liquid fiat assets, which are primarily stocks, bonds, and other things, into Bitcoin. If their assets are going down, they're not making more speculative investments to the long term, which is what you're doing when you're investing in crypto. So everyone starts to shrink and they don't want to take as much risk. The second thing is money supply. So we have enough money supply because I've said the fiat assets are so much bigger than the size of crypto. But remember what I said earlier, China's M2 is $40 trillion dollars. The U.S. is $22 trillion in number two. China is the most important player in global liquidity. That has been the case now for about the last seven, eight years when they took over the U.S., and it still grows at a fast pace. So if China's in complete shutdown mode and no money is moving around, then China's not going to be involved in the crypto world. So now that we're starting to see the tech shares go up, now that we've seen a peak in the Fed funds expectations for the end of the year, over the last 40 days, it's effectively unchanged, meaning it got up to about 285 40 days ago. It's still around 285 right now. The prior two waves where it went from 80 all the way up to 280, there were kind of 200 basis point moves, and each of those led to significant falls in tech shares and also in crypto and specifically in Bitcoin. So I think Bitcoin is going to follow the way that the China tech shares go, but also the Fed. And I think in both of those cases, those are no longer headwinds. If anything, they're a minor breeze coming at us. And in China, it's a tailwind. If the Fed becomes a non-entity, meaning at the end of the year, we actually have the Fed funds rate at 285 and there's no more surprises. I would expect Bitcoin not only to go higher, but as we see a change in the market and as stocks get to up on the year, at some point, Bitcoin will start to see the investment that comes from China leading the way. And I think that's what's going to drive it. As we've talked about, China has cracked down on Bitcoin mining. As a matter of fact, they've banned it. It's still happening a little bit, but they've effectively banned it. And transacting in Bitcoin is legal in the country. So can you draw the connection as to why these two assets are so closely correlated given the China crackdown? Yeah, and I'll connect two things on that. And this will go back to my times in Brazil because the whole thing with Terra Luna and with these China crackdowns and mining and stuff reminds me of my time in Brazil. 
Brazil made it impossible, theoretically, for Brazilians to take their money outside the country. So wealthy Brazilians had to find some way to magically get their money outside the country. And guess what? They always did. So when China says they don't want people moving into Bitcoin, you can't stop it. Whether it's Macau, whether it's handbags of money, I don't really care. When you have that much M2, you can't keep track of all of it. And when the size of the market cap of Bitcoin is 1.2 trillion or wherever it is right now, and you've got 40 trillion in China alone, it's not worth it. It doesn't matter in the whole scheme of things. So the headlines on that are, again, narratives, but that has no impact on what's going. There are still people moving money in there. They're just not going to be public about it the same way it was in Brazil. The second thing, this Terra Luna thing, which I will say marked the lows in Bitcoin. And that's the kind of stuff I like to see when there's a panic and everyone's telling me that Bitcoin will be 5,000 over the weekend when it was 26,000 because we had a stable coin break its peg. Brings me back to Brazil. I lived in peg breaks all through the 1990s. Emerging markets had peg breaks. We had peg breaks in the US breaking the buck during the 08 situation. So with the money market, with the money market. So what happened in this is part of growing up as an asset class. It's part of innovation. This should be zero surprise to people. And it occurred at a time when you've got a lot of hedge funds bailing out of positions because of redemptions. The one good thing about Bitcoin, it's a liquid asset and they have a leverage feature in there that it can fall fast because there's automatic leverage, there's automatic margin, meaning if someone buys it and they want to use leverage, well, if it hits a level, it's going to get stopped out immediately through algorithms. So as opposed to a hedge fund where they're getting quarterly liquidity or monthly liquidity or whatever the case is, where they sell stocks to make sure they have cash on hand, crypto is more efficient. It just happens more real time. And so I think it was impacted dramatically. And I think the stablecoin marked the low. But now that the China tech shares are going, I think eventually when you start to see Bitcoin get back above 33,000, 34,000, it's going to happen at the same time that the Fed expectations drop and peak inflation starts to become a story. It is not a story yet in terms of it being a given. I would say 60% are and the inflation's not going to drop off much. 40% are. It may have peaked, but it may not have peaked. But regardless, nobody's on the camp that the Fed is going to stay around the levels that are expected in December. And so those two catalysts to me are going to be the things that change the narrative in Bitcoin and people will start to be positive as we get into the second half of the year. Talk to me about the counterfactual. If you wind up being wrong, what would be the reason why? That's simple. Animal spirits is about the government throwing a lot there and it not showing up in the market. And so China tech shares could start to go back down. They could stop going higher. This could be delayed into next year just because there's another wave of Omicron and the Chinese overreact to it and they don't abandon their zero COVID policy. We don't get mRNA. So those things could all go on just to extend it. The second thing is that I've mentioned that Fed expectations are 285. If Fed expectations go to four at the end of this year, then this is all going to be moot, meaning then I don't think we're going to see any kind of rally in the second half of the year. Other than in maybe the Asian stuff, if you get animal spirits that actually does show up against the Fed, you get this neutral thing. And under that case, Asia and the rest of the world would outperform the U.S., but U.S. stocks alone might be in, but you're not going to see a big rally and you're going to finish the year down on the year. So the Fed expectations to the end of the calendar year are really important. The rate itself doesn't matter. It's the uncertainty over whether they're going to go. The worst part of this year for everything was when there was talk of, okay, they're going to do 50 for the next five meetings. Oh, no, they're going to do 75 the next meeting. We didn't know what they were going to do. 
So if growth is slowing, which I think it is, as I've mentioned on prior podcasts, because of the rise in rates, the abrupt rise in rates, if growth is slowing but not going into a recession, which is where I stand by things and believe it, the second that we get certainty on where rates will be, I think you're going to unleash things. So the other side would be if we don't get certainty in rates and the animal spirits don't show up. All right. So let's talk about the playbook to end here. People listen to this podcast and they say, okay, essentially, unless we have inflation numbers that are dramatically higher than what the expectations were, Jordy's thesis means there's a lot of upside in equities. And therefore, it is very important for people to pay attention to the inflation numbers coming out over the course of the next few weeks, right? Yeah, and we're doing this on Wednesday. There's a CPI number tomorrow. I will say the data itself is not as important as the movement and the expectations of the Fed. So if the data comes out higher than expected, but the equity market falls back to the lows, which would be a significant fall because the S&P, as of us coming in here, had made back almost 40% of the fall for the year. So if this is another quote-unquote bear market rally because the inflation data doesn't simmer down and we see it fall back off, the real question will be, is the bond market going to be up or down? Because in the beginning part of the year when Fed expectations were going up, it was absolutely just all rates were going higher. The difference is this time the economy is not in the same place. So inflation is a lagging indicator. And if growth is slowing, which it is right now, clearly not even a question, the real issue is, okay, we have growth slowing this time. So if the Fed's going to be more aggressive and they build that in, will rates actually come down? So the inflation data is not as important as the reaction. And I said that before, but it's the reaction specifically in Fed expectations to the end of the year. I do think if this data point came out surprisingly strong, that means the summer is going to be a range trading quiet thing until we wait for more inflation prints in July and August to see where things are. But for those people who are focused in on Bitcoin, your message is pretty clear. Not only should you watch the numbers, but you need to watch how those numbers are perceived and the reaction to those numbers, right? Yes. And it's not just the reaction in Fed funds rate to the end of the year. It's also in how China responds to it because you can have stimulus happening in China and the Chinese stock market can continue to go higher and the tech names can go. That is going to be a tailwind for Bitcoin. The headwind will be the Fed. You want to check both things. We're in a different time period. So the reaction by those two things, those are the things that were both headwinds. And now one of them is a tailwind as of now. The other one is a neutral thing, and so China's winning out. The Fed's not a big issue. You want to check both of those. Is there any place that you can tell us where we can kind of just get a hot take on these things, maybe on a daily basis? Yeah, morning seed started. So every morning at the firm, we have an 8 o'clock meeting where Lundy, Mike, and I, as well as all the PMs who have anything important, we talk about things that we think are going to drive markets in the future. So this is not a rehash of kind of news. We do talk about things that are important from overnight. But for anyone looking for kind of a active manager who's providing insights that can impact if you're an RIA and you're talking or FA and you're talking to clients, this is data that from a hedge fund perspective who's involved in all industries, all sectors, all asset classes, gives you some perspective on what we see as the most important news of the day 
you can go to the website and you can see it there. It comes out every day. You don't want it out any later than 9.35, preferably before 9.30. We've been pretty good about it. We just launched it. So it's a good way for people to get up on the markets for each morning. Fantastic. Would encourage everybody to check that out. And thank you very much, Jordy. This was great. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.